every day's good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in Gainesville, Florida, and left Sunday, and now I'm in North Carolina for about a week, and I'll be back there next week. So yeah. Well, welcome to Preacher Lab for preachers just like you and I. And I have the great, distinct opportunity to talk with Bishop Ken Carter, who is the Bishop of the Florida Conference and the Western North Carolina Conference. Uh, Bishop Ken, thanks for joining me on the Preacher Lab. It's great to be with you, Will, and thank you. So I want to get right into it. Um, what does preaching and preparing a sermon look like for you as a bishop? I would say it's different than being in a local church uh, because I'm I'm generally always preaching to a, a church where that may be the only time I ever preached there. And I've preached in probably several hundred Florida United Methodist churches, preached in Mandarin, uh, where you are over the years. And I know that this will be my one time there. And also, we don't have an investment in a pastoral relationship, which also makes it different. And so after having been a local church pastor for 28 years, where it was all about an ongoing relationship, it was all about the ongoing dialogue of life and convictions and what people are experiencing, uh, that, that has been different, but I do enjoy it, and I do it a lot more, I'm told, than most bishops do it. So I enjoy it. Yeah. Huh. So what, what, is, what do you think has been, the, I guess, the hardest part of preaching as a bishop? Because if you only see these people you know, once ever, um, what do you think has been the most difficult transition from being a local church pastor to bishop? Is it the stories, the connection with people? You know, I have not found the preaching to be a hard transition. It's just different. And preaching in a local church allows me to affirm the pastor. It allows me to thank the local church. And and, and also, to be honest, it allows me to work on fewer sermons and to go deeper with them. And so, you know, in Advent, Christmas, they tend to tend to be those texts, and often their lectionary. Same with Lent, especially toward Holy Week and Easter or Pentecost. But otherwise, unless it's a special occasion, uh, I often will preach variations of of a few different sermons based on what I think is needed in that church. For a while, they were sermons on reconciliation. Lately, I've been preaching in a few churches, a sermon on kind of what our identity is as Methodist. And I find that to be a lot of fun. And I find that it just allows uh, me to kind of state what is our purpose? Who are we? And I find that to be very meaningful. Yeah. So when you think about your experience as a local church pastor and, and even for pastors that you coach lead mm-hmm. how do you how important do you feel preaching is to the role of pastor yeah it's a great question you know i i would say it was developmental for me and i served you know a very uh rural four church charge for a few years where really the, the a lot of the work was about relationships and a lot of pastoral visitation, 
And the sermon was also the thing I worked on at the end of the week. And in those churches, these were kind of family churches. They were going to be there because this was where the family gathered. And this was this was this was where life was kind of organized. When I got to a couple of really large churches, uh, one in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, one in Charlotte, uh, especially the Charlotte Church, uh, these were churches where people came from a broad region. Uh, they often passed, you know, 20 or 30 other churches to get there. They Many of them could have been in many places. You know, they lived in a couple of different places and and so I realized the sermon really had to be the first thing I worked on that week, and it could not come at the end. Uh, and so I began to invest more time working on sermons early in the week, and then at the end of the week, working on more editing sermons, working on the delivery of sermons, uh, et cetera. So, but I, I think for especially churches that are medium-sized and larger, it's crucial because it's really the way you have a pastoral relationship with people is through the sermon. That's, in that's interesting. I, I've never thought about it in terms of size of churches um, and how that impacts how you prepare the sermon and the role of the sermon. Because if you have a church mm -hmm. of 25, 30 people, I mean, your sermon is a part of going to the hospital and visiting them in their homes and having lunch with them and meals with them. And, and you're mm -hmm. having that one-on-one, one-on-ten conversation. Whereas if you're in a large church, you don't, you might not get to see everybody except that one hour a week on that Sunday. Right. And that's, that's that sermon that you're doing in this large expository sense. Right. That's, that's, oh, that's really interesting. And they often will feel like they know the preacher better than the preacher feels like she or he knows them because you develop this relationship through the sermon. So when you, when you move from the smaller local church to the larger local church, did you feel that your sermons had a different feel to them? Um, or do they have a different tone or voice? You know, I, I would say I was an associate pastor of a large church early on as well. And, and was and preached some there and and a couple of years preached a lot just because of the unique circumstances of the church at the time but i'm not valuing large and small churches differently it just partly it was the role that preaching was much more important uh, because it was where the great number of people gathered and uh, and so I needed to take it more seriously and and just just devote more energy to it. And and so that was really where it came from. So how how have you kind of seen how you write sermons grow over these years of mm -hmm. ministry? You know, and of course, I have you know, having been a local church pastor for 28 years, I have a lot of sermons, just manuscripts. And I can look back and see that, you know, you preach through the lectionary many times, or you preach through particular books of the Bible many times, or you preach on topics, you know, and I've preached on 
any kind of topic you can imagine. I, I was more of a lectionary preacher, but we would take breaks and do different things with that. Uh, and so, you know, I think, I think for in the move from being a parish minister to being a bishop, uh, I would I would often ask the pastor what you think that what do you think the church needs to hear what's going on with the church what would be helpful and sometimes they would tell me you know if um, uh, and and so you know I would say the preaching as a bishop in churches is a little more general uh, just because you really. Uh, don't have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. And I do believe, you know, someone has said, being a pastor, being a preacher, uh, there's a dynamic relationship. I mean, I, I do believe the better a pastor we are, the more we are listening to people, the more our preaching is related to their concerns the more tuned in they are to us, and it's a circle. It's a it's a circle, uh, reinforcing circle. You know, I would say what what is also different is preaching to say an annual conference, uh, preaching, you know, which I've done preaching in ordination services, which I've done preaching at a general conference, which I've done, and then preaching in you know other places like you know Duke Chapel or you know places like that where you're kind of a guest preacher and they're accustomed to hearing a lot of different voices. And I just, I always try to put a lot into it. Um, and, um, and, and enjoy it. Uh, I like the intellectual side of it. And I would say I do have a little bit of a luxury in that I can sometimes work on a sermon often, for example, the sermon I'm going to preach at annual conference, I will preach in one or two churches in late May in local churches just to begin to work on the material. Yeah. That's not a luxury a local church pastor has. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess we can preach to our dogs or spouses or kids. <laughs> right. 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 So when you think about your, the love that you have for working on these sermons and then giving them, what do you think your preaching niche is, your, your thing, your, the thing that you love about, I don't know, your kind of personality when you preach? Yeah. You know, I, well, one, I really, I would say I had some, this is kind of either privilege or blessing. I had some really good teachers along the way who, who just in divinity school. And then I was in, kind of a group of pastors who met a couple times a year to work on sermons. And, and so I'm, I'm a little more of an extrovert than an introvert. So I enjoyed that. I would say I do have a sense. So, so, you know, my preaching professor professor was, was Richard Lisher at Duke. And he has, he kind of has an assumption that the word has its own power and we don't have to invent something or create something that if we will just allow the word itself to speak it it has its own resonance with people that's kind of a high view of scripture high view of the holy spirit 
I have to do the work, but I have, I, he would often say, you know, you have trust your material, you have good material. And so I, I don't think of it as like, I have to be so um, creative. It's just working with these raw materials. And I would say over time, I have been influenced by things like the TED Talk movement and the narrative movement, I do realize intuitively that when I'm telling a story, it's like people, their head goes up and they're listening closer. And the more narrative, the more story I can put into a sermon. Uh, and also the, the briefer the sermon can be, the more powerful. I mean, most TED Talks are like 15 minutes long. And so I find that, you know, the trying to be aware of what are the narratives that uh, relate to this instead of it being so didactic. Uh, and I would say another niche would simply be trying not to tie up every loose end in a sermon and trusting that people, if they're motivated to be there and listen, they will take it and apply it to their own life. Yeah. I, I would say also another niche would simply be my putting myself on the same plane with the listener that I'm not, it's not like I have this, like say preach when I preach about race, it's not that I figured this out or I'm, I'm, I'm in a higher place than another person is. I, I try to clearly say I am in the same uh, struggle that, I imagine you are. And I'll, I'll sometimes even say, you know, visually, this pulpit may be five feet higher than the congregation is sitting or 10, but I want you to know um, I don't feel like I'm, I have any kind of arrogance. Um, and that, I think that's sort of where Paul is in, the, in his, in his uh, writing as well in the New Testament. Yeah. I, gosh. When I when I've when I've heard you preach or hear you preach or watch you preach, um, I, you have this sense of this like calm, even keel demeanor. Uh -huh. Not as not, yeah. not like a apathetic uh -huh. tone, but just this, right. this centered, peaceful kind right. of presence. Um, and mm -hmm. I and I wonder, and I don't know, I wonder if that that's where that third piece comes in about recognizing that you're there with the congregation, with the people, and not that you know everything, but we're all doing this together. Um, you know, it, I think I think I do feel that, and partly that is because I've I've just known remarkable lay people all my life who I preached an ordination sermon a few years ago, which was mostly about preaching to clergy, and the idea was don't think that you're more advanced than the people you're going to serve. And then I talked about lay people in every church I served who were trying to pull me out into the world and expose me to something that was going on in the world. I think also I grew up in the deep South and I did grow up with a stereotype of the hyper, hyper, highly anxious, highly urgent evangelist, you could call them. And, and there, and then some of those people, when I, got to know them as people they were very different than they were in the pulpit that they kind of had a pulpit voice 
And then they had a normal voice. <laughs> and I just never thought that was the way God wanted to use us as preachers. Uh, and that it could have been a reaction to that, to just try to have a have a conversation. I think my when my preaching is at its best, and it's not always as it's at, at its best, but when it is, it's I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation with people. And I think when I was serving in a local church, I tried to really pay attention to what was going on in the world. Not that the world set the agenda for the sermon, but that was like what people came into the service preoccupied with. So if a child washed up on a beach in Italy trying to migrate from Syria and people had been seeing those images, they bring that to the sermon. You know, the sermon is people are sitting down, they're listening, they're, they're in a passive place, they're in a receptive place, they brought this with them. And if I don't talk if I don't reflect on that or George Floyd or you know what's going on with COVID or the polarization if I don't somehow reflect on that but but in a way people can access it I'm asking them to take something they're thinking about set it aside and and allow me to present a different agenda I believe that's very hard for people to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and so I do think it's the, what I loved was the scripture as a dialogue with what was going on in the world and to try to be humble about that, but try to say, you know, what is the spirit saying to us through this dialogue between this, that, and that's what I loved about preaching in local churches could be, a crisis that happened in a in a congregation, you know, in a family, um, and 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 so I really liked that. I also believe, you know, those who are listening who are preachers, um, you know, I, I have a real sense that over time preachers really do change congregations, and I think sometimes ministers and preachers feel like. I don't have a lot of authority. I don't have a lot of power. And I'm only preaching for 20 minutes. They're watching television for many hours or listening to talk radio or, but, but you, every week, week after week, year after year, you begin to frame the way people see the Bible. And, and also I think people, as we are pastors to them, begin to frame how we, see the Bible also. And so I would say that's that you're right about preaching and and what we learn in seminary and what we learn in something like Institute of Preaching. And yet a person who is a pastor to people, you know, and like I think the greatest preachers did this. I mean, I think, you know, Dr. King, I mean, clearly he was his preaching was changed by the relationship with those persons in his church and what they were going through. Same with Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, and and even and Barbara Brown Taylor would often bring people from her rural area into her sermons, and and so I think that's um, trying to just 
hold together again the the work of pastoral ministry and and if something really bothers you that's happened this week in a church what what's that mean and how can that find its way into a sermon and can I, can I just tell you one story about about <laughs> this uh the so I was I was a pastor of a large church in a large city in Charlotte and and one year it was going to be confirmation Sunday and I was going to be preaching the sermon and we had large confirmation classes. And that week, a young gay boy had been bullied and killed somewhere in the New York, New Jersey area. And I was pretty sure that two or three of the kids might be LGBTQ. This And this was... Gosh, this was 15 years ago. And so I just decided within the sermon to talk about how each of them was created in God's image, no matter what their identity or orientation, that God loved them and this was their church and we loved them as a church and always would. And that what we were saying that day was the most important thing, and we wanted to be a church that uh, they would feel completely comfortable in terms of who they were. And and so I just used the language of LGBTQ a bit, but I tried to frame it in terms of their acceptance. And that evening, a, a woman in the church wrote me and just said, she was deeply disturbed by my what I had said, and she was with her young child, and she was embarrassed. Her young child heard it, and and she kind of said, "Promise me you'll never do this again." And so I wrote her back, and I said, "You know, here's what I was trying to do," and and she she said, "You know, no, you're not listening to me. I want you to promise me you'll never say this again." And so, so I realized, you know, that obviously email was not the best way for us to have this conversation. And so I just said, could we meet one day this week and talk about this just face to face? And so we did. And, um, you know, and finally I said, I'm, I'm trying to understand your concern, but I really cannot promise you that I'll never do this. Uh, and I, I, for me, this is trying to bring together the scripture and what's going on in the lives of these young people. And so we just agreed to disagree. And I said, and that was where it le we left it. And, and then, so this was like May, this was in the confirmation class came in. So then that the next fall was Reformation Sunday, and I was preaching on Reformation and what the scriptures meant and how we all interpreted the scriptures differently. And I asked her, I said, can I tell this story, but obviously not mention you by name, about how, for me, the Reformation is about how the scripture was placed in all of our hands, and we read them differently. And she was fine with that. And, and so I did that. And, and that's an example of 
of, you know, I said before the Reformation, the clergy said it, that would have just been it. Uh, the, re- the priesthood of believers was the Reformation is in all of our hands, all of our language. And there, we, we're not worshiping together because we have a 100% universal agreement about what the scripture says. We are struggling to understand the scripture. And it speaks in our own language. And so to me, that was just an interesting set of relationships and conversations and how a couple of sermons related the first one to something that was going on in the world and how I just wanted to integrate it because I thought, you know, I know these youth. I've gotten to know these youth as they've grown up. I just didn't want them to wonder what does our pastor think of me? I just, partly it was my own wanting them to feel like they could know me and trust me as a pastor and I would know them and love them. Uh, Part of it was, was I wanted the congregation to begin to experience what for some is an issue as actually being about people. And then I, I came back to it later in terms of, This is how all this relates to how we read and interpret scripture, which is really also a part of preaching. Anyone who preaches and the preaching gets much beyond kind of platitudes, these experiences are going to come along. And I really tried to not, I tried to say to the, to the person in the congregation, this is, this is your church too, you know? And so it was those kinds of experiences when you're, when you're going through them, they can be a little nerve wracking, you know, and no one likes to get those, that kind of feedback. Uh, But on the other hand, it was, I felt like it was um, a part of what I felt called to do at the moment. And I also wasn't like throwing a hand grenade and, watching everything melt down. I was taking responsibility for moving toward people as a pastor. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful story. And it, you know, I, I hear that the sermon changed you as a person. Right. It changed right. that, that individual. It impacted the relationship. And then that mm-hmm. sermon impacted the next sermon. Um, right. And like, right. it's almost like these flowing waters that impact yeah. you as a preacher and impact the person who's hearing it as well. Right. Just, right. There's this interconnectedness of not just one sermon, but a whole yeah. host of sermons. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, is, are there any final thoughts um, for those preachers who are listening? Things you would tell preachers? I know you speak to a lot of them regularly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I would say I would really, is this isn't like an odd or a duty. I would really encourage people to find a small cohort that they can really work on sermons with. Even if you can't work on sermons, all of your sermons, doing that just for the Lenten sermons or just for the Advent sermons. So meeting a couple times a year for a full day. In our group, we 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 came together and worked on 26 weeks of sermons and we each we divided them up. There were seven or eight of us. So we each had two or three sermons, three sermons. So we did the exegesis work, the worship implications, and made copies for everyone. So I left 
and we spent an hour on each week. So I left having thought about the next half year and with notes on every Sunday. And obviously, I'm not going to preach a sermon someone else would preach. You know, they have a different voice, different experience. There were men and women in these groups. Uh, But if you couldn't do that for 26 weeks, could you do it for the sermons in November and December or the sermons in March and April or Palm Sunday, Easter, Pentecost? Just a way of, and and to me, one of the great values of that one is the different voices that feed into a sermon. Another is I'm convinced that if we can think longer term about sermons, subconsciously they're working in our mind, and then things happen and we flag them, and we think that would that would work with this sermon. Yeah. That would be and and doing everything from Monday to Sunday is really hard. So having a broader horizon is good. And that also then allowed me, because I'd done that kind of concentrated work, it allowed me to have to be more available to people. I didn't have to like spend a whole lot of time with my door closed and working on sermons. It allowed me then to be more available to people, which I enjoyed. So those are those are just some of it. And you know, I would say reveal a little bit more about yourself in your sermons. Um, I just find that your own narrative is important. You know, they say what's most personal is most universal. And I believe that. And there were some things I rarely talked about in local churches. And and in hindsight, I don't know why, you know, that 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 were were relevant to what I was preaching about. And so I think some self-revelation, obviously there's a there's a, a limit to that. It can be overdone, but you know, the I think that's being being a little vulnerable and can be very powerful. And it's what people often connect to and they associate it with their own life. And so that that would that would just be some of it. Yeah. 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 Well, I've got one final question. Um, in the last six months, what's been kind of one of your most impactful books that you've read? Uh, fiction, nonfiction, leadership, mm. children's book. Uh, what's been one book mm. you would recommend? What's one book? Um, you know, you know, I would say right now, this this might not be the most impactful one, but right now I'm reading a book by Gerald May on the dark night of the soul. He's a, Gerald May is a psychiatrist, was a spiritual director. And it's about John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. And I've been reading it because I'm convinced that with this whole pandemic and even the racism and the Dr. King's knock at midnight sermon, that we've been through this kind of dark night as a society almost. And, and I don't know that we know how to make sense of it in terms of our faith. And, and, and in John of the Cross was very clear that 
you had this initial enthusiasm as a follower of Jesus. And then all human beings go through this kind of dark night of the soul, dark night of the senses, where things are less clear, things are disturbing. Uh, and I think that's been, it's been that way for us. I mean, to socially distance, how much of that should we do? How little of that? What do we do with our disagreements? What do we do with the visceral surfacing of racism? And how can we grow toward a better place? And how can we work on the polarization? And, and when we're exhausted, how do we do any of that? And, and so I think that kind of the dark night of the soul uh, is something I've really been working on. Um, you know, I do read a fair amount, but, but I would sort of, that's one of them. Yeah. 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 Well, Bishop Carter, thank you okay. for spending your time, for sharing your wisdom, your kindness, the, the love you have for the local church, which I know is near yeah. and dear to you, and just the love you have for the people of the United Methodist Church. Yeah. Um, thank you for your time and just sharing all of it with us. Well, thank you, Will, and thanks for what you're doing with, with this uh, podcast and blessings in your ministry. Thank you. <laughs>